I'll admit it. I was kind of professionally curious if I would like this film more or less this time around. Some of you may remember, I've done a stream on this film already. Uh, me and Third went to see it in the theaters. And, I mean, it wasn't a bad film, I just wasn't overly impressed with it. So going back through it, well, we'll see how much my change has been minded after going through it. Bird, Brad Bird had an interesting situation ahead of him. I've talked about this a little bit. He worked on The Incredibles, and then immediately after that, he was called in to fix Ratatouille. Remember that? And that was two major films back-to-back, and so Bird kind of walked away from filmmaking for a little bit. Kind of a similar thing that Laster did after the Toy Story 2 thing. So, after that, he was called in to do Tomorrowland, which we're not going to talk about here. And finally, he was like, okay, I think I'm ready to go ahead and work on this. And according to him, he had ideas bouncing around in his head for Incredibles 2 for some time. One of the biggest things that he kept saying was that he really wanted to not make an MCU film. I've already talked before, uh, especially in Finding Dory, about how the MCU era of films affected other films, non-superhero films. This is a superhero film. (laughs) See, you can see the problem, right? So how do you approach that? How do you deal with that? And there's certainly some logic behind that. He said he wanted to really focus on the people, not the powers. Now, that makes sense. That is what we in the business like to call a Superman story. Because, you know, all the really good Superman stories focus more on the person than on the fact that he soups. Whether he succeeded or not is a little bit of an interesting question. I posit the question to you. Do you think this is more about the people? Or do you think this is an MCU film? It's worth noting, these are not mutually exclusive choices, by the way. Which, of course, leads me to my answer. Both. In fact, I literally think this is two plots, which, while they have some similarities and significance to each other are mostly detached from each other. There's the MCU plot, which is Helen's, and then there's the people plot, which is Bob's. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So they came in and they're like, all right, let's do it. Here's the catch. This film came out 14 years after Incredibles 1, and obviously started development well after that. So they had to make all the models from scratch. They couldn't just reuse them. In some cases, it's pretty obvious. You've probably seen some of the comparison side-by-side pictures. And in other cases, it's not super obvious. In this case, it wasn't just the fact that the files were, like, uneditable or whatever was going on with Toy Story. Instead, they had a different problem. The files were old. They had so they had developed the text so much in the last 14 years, a path I've been talking about as we go through these ruminations, that they simply used different file formats, and the old formats simply didn't apply anymore. They needed to have something that could handle the, uh, the meshes, the skeletons, and the... Uh, I can't think of the term. The other thing it, that the, the, new, the newer models and the newer style demanded. The older models were simply too old. You know, you import a PS1 mod uh, object mod mob into a ps3 and you're gonna have issues right sense make anyways so okay they did manage to get back just about everyone even michael giacchino came back and uh they did have to change dash's voice actor because he'd been through puberty because it's been 14 years and they couldn't quite pull a toy story 3 because they didn't want to do that they wanted incredibles 2 to literally happen seconds after incredibles 1 which is exactly what they did okay i'm with that Everything's going fine so far, and then there was a problem. See, they... they, I don't know who made this decision, but someone in the upper up echelons... Maybe I'll find out 
you know, when I cover the next film, which is the film that this affects. So someone in the upper echelons decided Toy Story 4 needed another year. Well, that means they need a film to come out this year. You're up, Incredibles 2. And learning that explains a lot. Now, it's not like this had a particularly troubled production, not like some of the other films we've covered, but it did have a very rushed production. And by most accounts I've read, what they ended up doing was just chopping out ideas left and right and trying to trim the film down and just focus on what they had, which was a good idea. What's interesting is I kind of feel like that's valid. If you asked me to compare Incredibles 1 and Incredibles 2 side by side, I would say Incredibles 1 is better in almost every single way. It, it certainly has its flaws, but it is a fantastic film. Incredibles 2 is a good film, but felt like it was just lacking in multiple areas. And knowing that the production was rushed and knowing that several ideas were outright cut helps to explain a little bit of why that is. It could also just be the fact that it's a film that was made 14 years later. Who knows? Or, or 12 years later, actually. But you get the point. I don't know. I do know that uh, there was something I wanted to share that amused me a little bit. First of all, as I said, we saw this in the theaters. There was no warning. No, uh, what do they call that? Uh, it's not. It's the seizure warning, but they call it like like photosensitivity. No warning played before the film actually played in the theaters. From what I understand, less than a week after, because we saw it, you know, the weekend of launch, less than a week later, they started showing that warning. I only commented on it because in this very uh, video, in, in this movie that I was just watching, it was like, hey, photosensitivity warning. Which is funny because obviously you're thinking, well, the screenslaver stuff, right? But actually, there's quite a bit of that, especially when the lightning powers are bouncing off the force field powers and how they showed the force field powers against the fire powers. There's a lot of <laughs> going on in this film. Weird choice, especially since, well, you kind of have to do that deliberately. That doesn't happen by accident in an animated film. Anyways, so the masks. I know we have to accept a lot of things. The fact that the masks work continues to amuse me. It's like, oh, no, no, it's a totally different person. <laughs> sure it is. And, of course, the government has a mind erasure device. Because, of course, they do. <laughs> That's not terrifying at all. Here's a question for you. Why is the underminer taking money? Why is he robbing banks? I mean, I suppose I might as well just ask, why do banks have giant chunks of cash in them? Because that's not how that works and hasn't for decades. But let's not get into that. Why is he stealing money? And I know the actual response you're going to give me. Well, duh, Lore. Do you, do you think giant mining vehicles grow on trees? It is a weird motivation, though, to, to go specifically after the cash. Hmm. Anyways. <clears throat> so, Mr. Incredible uh, sucks. This, I feel, is one of the weaker points of this part of the film. Mr. Incredible puts in an incredibly poor showing in stopping the Underminer. Keep in mind, he has been, at, at this point in time, remember, it's only been seconds from the end of Incredibles 1, which is very shortly after the main events of Incredibles 1. He has been practicing, he's been training, he's fit himself up, he is recently experienced at dealing with superhero-level threats, and a villain who outclassed him in almost every way. He sucks against the Underminer and consistently is cartoonishly stupid about it. The only one who has an idea of anything to do about actually stopping this thing is Helen, who actually goes in to, to stop the engine. Whereas he's trying to, in, in two ways that both anybody could have told you would work, just brute force stop the tracks. Now, you could go ahead and say that he's Mr. Incredible. He's the big, dumb brute. 
And if you're saying that, then you didn't see the first film. While Bob is a very human character who is very flawed, and that's a trend that continues into this film, he's not an idiot. He is an extremely experienced person who knows how to infiltrate, to outmaneuver, and to outthink. He's an experienced high-tier super. He should know how to stop a tank. <sighs> Anyways, has to happen because plot, and there's a decent amount of that in this film. And that's kind of my point. This is one of the reasons why I say Incredibles 2 dips below Incredibles 1 for me. There's a fairly decent chunk of that, that kind of thing. Anyways, so then we get into the superhero argument. <sighs> All right. I don't want to cover this again. This came up back in uh, the Captain America Civil War rumination. And even there, I only covered it for like five or so minutes. It was, it's an interesting topic, and there's a lot to be said about that. I actually got some fascinating comments in the comments section of that very rumination about that, because there is a lot to be said about that. The issue, really, is the nature of what kind of a thing the Sokovia Accords could and should be, and how applicable it is and how enforceable it is. And far more intelligent people than me have done entire essays about this topic. In this case, however, I do have to point out two interesting things. First of all, they read the Supers the Riot Act. Now, they don't arrest them, for, despite the fact that they're illegal. That's interesting. But they do decide to say, did you stop him from causing the damage? The answer to that is yes, by the way. While they didn't stop all the damage, they did, in fact, stop him from causing more damage. Just point it out. Point two, did you stop him from robbing the banks? Nope. Because Incredible was an idiot, and he was. Point number three. Did you catch the bad guy? Nope. Why is this relevant? I have a really strong feeling that the political side of this would have been totally cool with this and been willing to brush this under the rug if they'd succeeded. It actually makes me wonder if other supers have succeeded in stopping other supervillains in the past, and the government's been willing to go ahead and kind of bypass that because they succeeded at it. A little bit of pragmatic real politic, if you will. The other thing I found interesting, the banks are insured, the damage could have been redone. We have infrastructure in place to deal with these kind of things. Huh. Now that's a fascinating sentence. And it could be inferred to just be a casual thing, but forgive my world-building brain here for a second, but what if... Okay, there's a term. I don't know what it's called. There's actually a real term for this. It, it, it derives from superhero comics. It's the idea that superheroes beget supervillains, right? In, in its simplest form. Now, this is nonsense. By virtually every measure in virtually every fictional universe, with the exception of Tony Stark, who constantly crafts villains as if it's a hobby, most supervillains are supervillains regardless of the superheroes. Sometimes their origins are attached, but for the most part, supervillainy happens regardless of heroes. Sounds like... The reason I bring this up is the Underminer showed up... Well, I mean, Syndrome showed up regardless of anybody, but also the Underminer showed up regardless of supers as well. He didn't come here to challenge anyone. He came here to rob some banks. What if the supervillains have continued to act? I talked about this in Incredibles 1. What if the supervillains have continued to operate and the government just kind of lets them get away with it and has their own much more mundane ways of dealing with that? The damage to the banks will be, you know, restructured. You know, they'll have to rebuild that area and they've got a, a, a construct, a construction contract now 
to rebuild the physical buildings, get those people back employed, get some money cycled into the city. All the money that was stolen is now invalidated. All those bills are now flagged, and all of that is now something that was insured anyway. So that money has effectively been cut off and is no longer part of the economy and is now replaced. And they just kind of use these mundane systems that really do exist in real life in order to just kind of invalidate the actions of the supervillains. And in so doing, deflate them. What would, we, what would you rather we do? Nothing? Yeah. Because that way the system would have beaten them because they wouldn't have succeeded in anything. We don't give them any attention, so they don't really get away with it. Now, that being said, that wouldn't cover, you know, more large-scale villains. Villains who are after things like, um, you know, world domination or destroying a city or conquering the moon or whatever other outlandish thing they come up with, right? <sighs> But it would cover supervillains who are trying to rob some money, and to that I say Bomb Voyage, who was also just robbing a bank, if you remember. Anyways, <clears throat> so, moving on. Uh, <laughs> uh, Violet says, why did you, why'd you leave us babysitting while you're doing the important stuff? I already talked in the previous film about the idea of support in Coco, about how different people support diff other people and keep them up and take care of them. That's actually a pretty strong theme here, too, although it's expressed in a different way. I mentioned that because... God, that would suck, wouldn't it? Like, I, I can't even put the words. Try to explain to a child or a teenager that, hey, you have superpowers and you can do all this awesome stuff, but you have to do all the boring stuff instead. Don't worry. I'll take care of you, and I'll be off doing the awesome stuff without you. Now, obviously, there are very, very, very good reasons to do such a thing like that, and there are certain ways in which that should probably be done. But imagine the perspective of the kid or the teenager who's being told that. What are you going to think about it? I want to be out doing the cool stuff. <sighs> yeah. It also, you know, doesn't get across the idea that, you know, the cool stuff is not the only good stuff to be doing. The cool stuff can only happen with the support structure, which is something that's been showing up a lot in these films, I've noticed. But anyways, so this then leads to an interesting scene. One of them asks, did we do something wrong? And Bob and Helen both give the same answer at the same time in different ways. Helen says, yes, we did something wrong. Bob says, no, we didn't do anything wrong. Helen is correct. What they did was illegal, and therefore that makes it wrong. Bob is right. What they did was not wrong. They jumped in to try and help and save people. That's kind of what they do. It is interesting to see them take this side here, especially given what happens later. Anyways, then they get a job offer. Bonus question. Do you think they would have accepted... Oh, God, I just realized I should have a shark for this. Hang on. Come here, Blue. Come here. Just kind of be Bond villaining it up here a little bit. Pet the shark, you know. You pet it. Oh, I'm sorry. It's right on your gills. I'm sorry, Blue. There you go. There you go. I'll switch hand position. Here we go. Pretends it's a white cat. Do you think they would have actually taken the deal that is being offered by the Endeavors if not for the fact that they were so desperate that they were at a point where they had no job and no home and had lost most of their stuff and had no prospects in addition to having to take care of two kids and a baby? In other words, and Bob himself says this outright, when she's debating and discussing it, she is correct to do so. But Bob is right in pointing out that there's no choice here. There really isn't. 
Not for the superheroes, not for the rights, not for the future, not for any of the esoteric gray stuff, but for the immediate need of the fact that they have a family that needs to be taken care of. There is an advantage to having a rich benefactor. It is the entire purpose of patronage, actually. Speaking of which, thank you very, very much, all of you, for continuing to support me so that I can sit here and pet my evil, evil shark. I know you're not evil. It's okay. I'm just saying that for the show. Yeah, I know. So, <clears throat> thank you. This kind of patronage is something that's very important in superhero comics as well. There's a reason why Tony Stark is one of the biggest names in Marvel. And it's not because he's a genius and it's not because of the suit. It's because of the money. He has all of that money which he can divest into so many different things and he does so constantly. Having that kind of support network is invaluable for supers. I mean, even Supes has his frickin' fortress, which is alien tech in most continuities. Anyways, I'm getting a little off topic. Although, while we're on the DC, I just want to mention... Remember that giant space station they have? Think about it. Anyways, so they decide to take the idea. Cool. Cool. Very cool. Um, there's a note I mentioned here. You know, do, do I think she would have... So, do you think they would have taken if they weren't so desperate? It is worth noting that she enjoys superheroing as much, if not more, than him. She just holds her back more from it because responsibilities. She's a mom first and a super second. Doesn't mean she's not a super. Doesn't mean she doesn't love doing it. Here's when I mentioned the rich support thing. The The combo of Evelyn and Windsor is actually really good. She's the inventor who plans and designs. She's also partially the showman, too, if you notice. A lot of the presentations are of her make, and all of that requires setup in advance. He is the actual presenter, the one who goes up and gives the speech and gives the presentation and glad hands and all that stuff. She's the int, he's the ka. And both of them work really, really well together. It's, if I can use a, a weird parallel, speedrunning. I love speedrunning. It's, it's one of my favorite little hobbies that I don't get to indulge in all that often. But I also love watching speedruns, like a GDQ, for example. Or uh, uh, there's other examples. So the problem is there are plenty of people out there who are excellent speedrunners who don't have an ounce of charisma. Now, no judgment intended. Not everyone is good at something and good at presenting the something. That's why a good couch is invaluable to a speedrun. You get the person on the controller or on the keyboard, they're the ones who actually know how to play the game and do it very, very well. Then you get the person on the couch and they get to explain it and present it so that it's entertaining for the audience and they can do that very, very well. You see the point here? You need the content and you need the presentation. This is exceptionally important in many aspects of real-life society, not just in business or entertainment, but just in functional life. Hell, being a parent also involves this kind of dynamic. And precious few people can do both roles. So, Bob shoves his foot into his mouth as hard as he possibly can by being sexist. Well, just whatever. And, <laughs> idiot. This then leads to them being quite correct. Thank you, Blue, for holding my notes. For being quite correct about... Here, come back up on camera. There you go. <laughs> You're really fart. This camera's really high up, isn't it? Here, you know what, Blue? Here, here. You're amazing and awesome. Come back over here, okay? They need to have someone who is a little bit more... This is the wrong word, but they need someone more photogenic. They need a good first shot of supers. And that's not Mr. Incredible. At least not as he's portrayed in this film. Big, lumbering, dumb, and most importantly of all, 
Lots and lots of collateral damage. So, Bob continues to be weirdly human. Allow me to go ahead and mention something that's going to probably make me uh, very unpopular since I am male. <laughs> but I like how flawed he is. He's not... How do I phrase this? This is something that came up in the first film, too. He's not super supportive. He's not the team player. He doesn't got you no matter what. Except he also does. He does support. He does take the back seat. He hates it. He grits his teeth at it. It drives him batty. But he does it. He hates not being out there being a super. He hated that insurance job. And he hates constantly losing out on sleep and barely being able to take care of himself and not being able to be a good dad. But he still does it. He still tries. He still puts that effort and work into it. And that's why I actually like him as a character. Don't mistake me. I would not get along with Bob in real life. That is not the kind of personality type that I would gel well with. But I can at least respect the fact that he is putting in the very real, very tangible effort to do better, to be better. He, um... So they, so they get the, the, the mansion. <sighs> nice to take care of the kids in a nice environment. Benefits of financial support. We need to, to cut Spider-Man a check. We're walking, we're walking. Uh, and so she goes out and she's awesome. And I, I, that's literally my note here, is that Helen goes out and is awesome. And it is. That's the MCU flick. I have very little to discuss about that side of the movie, because there's not much to discuss there. She is awesome. That is, this is the Plesta gameplay moments, every time it cuts to Helen and her adventures. Because there's not a lot narratively going on, but there's a lot that is very impressive visually, in terms of animation, in terms of just creativity. Just to name one example, the bike that splits... So to take advantage of her unique power set and her unique abilities. That's brilliant. Do you know how rare it is to see deliberately designed, custom-crafted artifact design like that in any fiction? Most of the time, it's just, here's something that allows you to hit well, or here's something that's generically useful to everybody. Making that kind of custom-tailored ability for someone's unique skill set, that's rare and brilliant. Someone, someone deserves a frickin' medal or a raise or a bonus for coming up with that idea and implementing it beautifully. Wonderful stuff. Like I said, plus the gameplay. Um, let's talk about the story side that really has a lot to chew on more, and that's Bob. Bob, now what's, other, what's interesting here too, one last thing, to, to compare the two side by side. And I think this comparison works, because Helen is doing what she's really good at. She is arguably the better super over Inc Mr. Incredible. I don't mean who would win in a fight. That's, that's the usual versus question. What I mean by that is she is better at the overall job. She is more precise, she is more skilled, and she tends to think her way through situations better. Later on, she works her way around and through a lot of people and takes charge immediately and without hesitation. She's good with people, she's good with situations, she's adaptive, she's smart, competent, and clever. Now, Mr. Incredible is not an idiot, except in this film, but you could see how I would consider her the superior super. So she's doing what she's good at, and she's loving it, and she's ex exuding about it, and it's so great to be back out there and to be doing this again. He is doing something he sucks at, and that gives the contrast she is competent, and he is incompetent. But this works for the narrative, especially for the central theme, which we're nowhere near to discussing yet. 
because now she has to do she has to do what she loves and he needs to do what he loves is the wrong word she has to do what she's great at so and and in order for her to do that he has to do what he's not great at he needs to overcome that he needs to be better he needs to have a character arc and he needs to improve himself throughout this arc to be a better father. And he does try and fail, and then he tries, and then he fails, and then he tries, and then he succeeds, and then he tries, and then he fails, and then he tries, and he succeeds. Those are specific events I just tracked in my head right there. He keeps trying to be better. And thus, he has an actual arc and an actual series of consequences and difficulties to overcome. And that then works because he is doing this for her so she can go off and just own it doesn't work without both. That's the whole point I'm trying to lean towards here. Even though I find his story more interesting, narratively especially, this film wouldn't work quite as well without both. Anyways. So, math is math. Unless you're the Isu. And um, he, he's just... Yeah, I, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to help Dash with the schoolwork. I don't know how to help Violet with her relationship troubles. I don't even know how to take care of Jack-Jack. How do I do this? This is when we find out that Jack-Jack has multiple powers. Now, I swear they revealed that before this film came out, but whatever. The point being, Jack-Jack has multiple powers. Okay, that sucks. <laughs> I've talked before about the concept of how terrifying it is to think of a child or a baby who has superpowers, and me and my sister have literally made a game of it at least once in our lives, where we'd think of the least bad and the most bad powers to have for a child, for a baby to have, with no understanding of how to use them or what to use them as. Yeah, that's terrifying. This actually came up over in the MLP streaminations as well, because one of the concepts there is that the younger you are, the more out of control your abilities are. There's a line later on. I wrote it down. I missed, her f I missed his first power, is what she says, uh, is what uh, Helen says with regards to Jack-Jack. And there's also a line Edna says. I forget what that one is, and I don't think I wrote that one down. Both of these lines make me think something. This is pure theory crafting. But I have a theory that babies, baby supers manifest multiple powers, and then as they get older, those pair down into their actual kit. You know, their actual set of abilities. I mean, after all, Violet doesn't have one power, if you think about it. And neither does Dash. I mean, super speed is just going to make him kill himself the moment he runs into anything. He has to have the, the ability to deal with that mentally. He needs to have the endurance to endure the speeds he's moving at, right? He needs to have the ability to function at that level. You get my point. That is... Taken from someone who's probably discussed the mechanics of supers in general, in comic books and in fiction, a little bit too much. But most superpowers are not really superpowers. A single superpower by itself is not useful. You need a kit that goes with it. You can fly, and congratulations, that's going to suck, depending on the speeds you can manage, or how much you can endure being, you know, a mile up in freezing temperature while wind is pa zooming past you at a level that would actually rip your skin apart. But if you have the endurance to go with it, or the ability to put yourself in a force field while you're doing it, you get the idea, right? So it's logical that their kit would develop from whatever random powers they have as a child until it pairs down to their actual thing. Now, I do think Jack-Jack is still unusual because he has a much wider array. 17 powers, I believe, was the number. And I don't know what his kit would be eventually, but, you know, I, I do still think that it would pair down over time and he wouldn't grow up to have 17 powers at that point. 
I could make so many jokes here. There's so many characters that are this stupid. Madon, should I go with that one? Um, how about, uh, oh, what was that jackass's name? Jean Grey and uh, Cyclops' son. I can't think of his name either. Anyways, otherwise we just have one of those situations, right? So, moving on. This then leads to Jack-Jack uh, going after the raccoon. <laughs> That's good. It's I, 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 another plus to gameplay for just just generally excellent animation and storyboarding and sequencing. I don't have anything to add. It's just good stuff. It's good stuff. Um, why are raccoons up here? This is a rich guy's house who, until recently, didn't have anybody living here. Why does the school bus come up here for that matter? How far out of the out of the way did they move? Hmm. Because it couldn't have been far if she's in the same school district. School districts aren't that big, at least not in big cities like this. Anyways, so, of course, uh, <laughs> Jack-Jack has the crime-fighting gene, because, of course, what we are is defined by our genes, right? Anyways, so, um, this is where the human thing really comes in. I already talked about this, but this is when it really comes in. She gushes. She loved it. She loved going out there. She loved saying the train. No casualties. She's so happy about that. And he's just tearing himself up, but still doing it, insists on not telling her what's going on so she doesn't freak out, so that she knows he's handled it, so that she can keep doing it. He is supporting her. He's doing it through gritted teeth, but he's still doing it. I'm reminded of Homer Simpson back when he was actually a good character, back in the early, you know, the first ten or so seasons of Simpsons. Probably actually more like the, the, seven, the three through ten range might be a better range there. Because he was a bumbling idiot who was selfish and greedy and a surprisingly good father and husband. Hmm. Flawed characters. That's that's a weird concept. Anyways, <clears throat> again, I don't want to dismiss his attitude because I do think he's being a twat here. But it is interesting the way they consistently portray that. So, where are we at? Um, there's a quick visual disparity thing. Winston, Winston Endeavor. He sits straight-backed. He's always prim, always proper. He actually has his legs crossed. In, I know you can't see my legs, but he has his legs crossed in the standard fashion. He holds himself like he's at a, a nobility meeting or a, or a proper dinner table with the queen kind of a thing. Evelyn. I gotta, you got to give me a second here because I usually sit up a little bit for these. There we go. You can't even see half. I mean, I've, I've seen my preview window over there. <laughs> she's she's doing this thing. Like, uh, yeah, her legs are lounged. She's completely relaxed. And they mention later that Evelyn and Win, uh, Winston are just basically yin and yang. But I do love how they show it, just in the way that they sit and talk and act. Hmm. <clears throat> so. Uh, this is when Helen works better with people. I mentioned that before. Takes charge. Better face. You know, better presenter for supers. Boy, that sounds familiar. And then we see that Dash eats triple the food anyone else. That makes sense. And the <laughs> this is when Violet finds out about the interference with her love life. And is like, I, I renounce supers. And she, <laughs> this is the first time I really laughed in the whole film. Like, really got a genuine... Because she throws the suit in, 
And then she's like, she gets this really triumphant grin on her face. That's the part that made me laugh because she was like, ha ha! And then hits the garbage disposal and it doesn't do anything. These are Edna Mo suits. It doesn't even scratch the thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, we get introduced to Void. I've always been a sucker for teleport powers or portal powers, by the way. That would probably be number two or three on my personal wish list if I could pick powers. Save states would be the first, obviously. Um, she uses them very creatively, too. It's great stuff. This is This is interesting. Bob takes to being a dad reasonably well, starts to actually own up a little bit better, but he's still running from behind. I'll come to that in a second. Then we have the big fight with the screen slaver. You have replaced... I almost wish I could have the whole speech up here right now to share with you. Because even though it's obviously the character that she's talking through, that is the actual screen... It's Evelyn. It's Evelyn. Her name's Evelyn Dever. For God's sakes. I do like how they skip around that, by the way. They introduce Winston Endeavor, Winston Endeavor, and then they introduce Evelyn. And they don't say the name. In fact, I don't think they ever say the name in one sequence throughout the whole film. So it's just there for you to pick up on it if you're paying attention. But anyways, she's the screensaver. Spoilers. Um, it's, it's a rumination. I can't ruminate on things without spoiling. That's the rule. I think she is being legitimate when she gives her big speech as the screensaver. Now, obviously, she wants him to be caught so she can get move forward with her whole thing and blah, blah, blah. But I think her actual motives are present there. You replace your experience with ease. You will take ease over quality ten times out of ten. She herself says that. And you don't want to talk. You want to watch talk shows and blah, 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 blah. Now, do I agree with that? Not even a tiny bit. I'm sure there are people who are like that, but, oh no, people have preferences. Ooh. I really do. I mean, you could say the same thing about, well, that's why McDonald's is popular. And you're right. McDonald's is popular. makes a lot of money. You know what else does? Every other restaurant in the world. People didn't... It, I'm sorry. Let me, let me explain that. Back in the 70s and 80s, people had a big concern about McDonald's. It's so cheap and it's so quick. It's so convenient. It's going to shut down all the restaurants. No one's going to want to go to any other restaurant. And those people were wrong. Because, of course, they were. Because that's stupid. I, it is. I'm sorry. It doesn't work that way. Too many people will always prefer different things. And even if you happen to like McDonald's, and by the way, no judgment if you do. I go to McDonald's every now and again. Every time they have McRibs, I go get a McRib because it's, cause I like the McRib and because it's a bit of a tradition, but mostly because I like it. No judgment. That's not the point. But I imagine most people would still not want to eat McDonald's every day or every time they go out for food, right? On the way to work, get McDonald's every day? That's going to get old. Maybe I'll hit the Wendy's today. You know, I need something quick, right? I might get something delivered. I could get some Chinese and then I'll have leftovers for tomorrow. You get the point. Just because ease and convenience exist doesn't mean it replaces everything else. Just because some people prefer to sit at home and relax because they've had a long and tiring day doing a job they don't like, so they just want to turn their brain off and watch something brainless and relax and enjoy themselves for a bit, does not mean people don't go actually go out there and do things. Forgive me for ranting a little bit, but I've heard this argument used in real life a lot for most of my lifetime, if it's not obvious given the 80s comment I just mentioned. So, I do wonder how much of that aggravation comes from working with her brother, who packages and sells everything. I'll come back to that in a moment. 
So the plot falls apart a bit as Helen really doesn't pick up on the fact that he's just a pizza delivery kid. Because plot. And meanwhile, Bob starts to lose even more sleep. Now, what's interesting about this is he gives this whole rant about... I, he, he doesn't say this word, these words, but what he means is, I've got this. The thing is, he doesn't. I mean, he does for now. He is doing a legitimately decent job given his limitations, and he is trying to be better. Character arc. The problem is his method will not work long term. Trust me, I should know. Constantly burning yourself out? Constantly grinding yourself down? I mean, I work 12-hour days when I push out these ruminations. There's a reason I cram this all into one section and then I don't do this for the rest of the year. This kills me every time I do this. Not literally, but you know what I mean. You can only do this kind of work short term. And it becomes really obvious how much it is absolutely destroying him because he just isn't sleeping trying to take care of three kids by himself. I feel that one too, by the way. I, they have so much more energy. How do they have so much energy? I wish we could fix the fusion thing in our body so we don't get more tired the older we get and we could just keep that level of energy because, oh my God, you know? Then I could keep up with them and it would be a lot easier to take care of kids. Anyways. So, finally, he decides to go ahead and take her to Edna and have Edna look at him and figure this out. Now, Edna... <laughs> Edna takes to Jack-Jack. Why do you think that is? Because it's either A because she finds him adorable and fascinating, or B, because he's an excellent study, an interesting creative challenge, a baby that has this many powers at this age? Ooh, there's a lot to study there. I think it's both. <laughs> Sorry, I keep doing this to you. I apologize. So, we see all the world leaders come together and write the reverse Sokovia Accords. Unlike the Sokovia Accords themselves, this has a little bit more grounds in reality. Just a little bit. Because what this means is that all, all they've done is removed a specific law. Effectively overturned a law. That means there's going to have to be other laws, probably dozens of other laws, on a per-nation basis to then support supers. To help decide what happens when, well, who's to blame for this situation, or if these people die, or if these damages happen, or if this thing is stolen, where does the blame go if the super doesn't get the bad guy? If they do get the bad guy, how do they deal with those punishments and crimes? How do we deal with the fallout of this? We need programs in place. We need institutions with, which have funding to be able to deal with the consequences of these actions. So, it, you may, that may sound like a weird thing, but my point is, this is the first step. Removing the illegality, undoing the previous law, you know? Okay, we've done that. Next would be infrastructure. I don't know if they'll ever cover that. I'm probably the only person on the planet who would find something really fascinating about a story entirely about superpowers have and, and the, the infrastructure to support that from a legality and uh, a, a financial perspective and an infrastructural perspective. But on the other hand, my favorite part about this film is a guy who can punch through walls trying to be a better dad. So what the hell do I know? So, he gives this really great speech. I'm used to knowing what the right thing to do is. And I just don't really know how to be the right dad, to be a good dad. I don't think any of us do, really. I swap the genders around to preference, but good parent, right? What do you do? Well, you either do what your parents do, or you don't do what your parents do. That's about all. That's about all we got to go on, right? Uh, so, 
she gives Evelyn is revealed as the villain, shock faced. Evelyn Endeavor. Oh my god. Uh, she gives her big speech. This is when the theme of the film, which, if I'm being honest, is actually pretty weak, comes into play. What I, I'm going to sh- explain what I mean by that. Now, I'm an idiot, so I can't actually explain this properly. But in a lot of these Pixar films, the themes are really strong. They show up constantly in multiple different interactions, both small and large, with secondary characters and main characters, so that the theme is an ever-present theme to the work, Right? Coco is an excellent example of that, the film I just covered earlier today and a couple weeks ago from your perspective. But this is true in most of these films. Now, there are a few films where the themes are very weak, and this is one of them. The theme here is teamwork. Now, there is teamwork on display. There are scenes that showcase it. Again, Helen couldn't do what she's doing if Bob couldn't do what he was doing. And Bob couldn't do what he was doing if he didn't have the backing of Lucius and of Edna. And his family backs him up, too. While obviously part of that is taking care of the kids, they also help him. It is a team effort. And Evelyn's whole speech about you trusted or relied on someone else, you depended on me, that was your mistake, just kind of showcases nice and overtly that she is outside of that, except she totally isn't. You, you counted on someone. Now, it could be argued that her big thing is that you shouldn't trust strangers, which is debatable. After all, her big point is, you don't even know me. And yet, she relies heavily on her brother. In fact, when everything goes south and she decides to flee, what does she do? She immediately goes and runs and rescues him and gets him out of there. She's even honest about what's going on to him. That's interesting. Real quick, why do you think she did that? Do you think it's because she actually cares about her brother, legitimately? Or do you think it's because she needs him because he's the face for the company and probably controls at least half of the finances that she would require to keep continuing? Yes, it could also be both. Interesting thought, though. Winston and Evelyn... There's a weird tragedy there, and I wish we'd explored their characters a little bit more, because they make an excellent team. They really are a fantastic duo, and they accomplished some great things and could have accomplished even better things, if not for the fact that she's a sociopath, or a psychopath, depending on how you... I I think she fits more on the socio side of things. And what's funny about this, though, until he abandons her from the plane, there's a little thread going throughout the whole film that he might be... Well, I don't want to use the word evil, but he might be an executive... Yes, they both start with E. The point is, he's he is not portrayed as necessarily good. He is portrayed as a suit who happens to love superheroes. That doesn't make him a good guy. Not you know the idea that supers try to rush out and rush out and rescue people and all that. That's cool, right? That's neat. But it's possible that he just likes the spectacle, the spectacle of it. He just likes the show and the flash and all that's so cool. I mean, that's easy to understand, right? I imagine most of us have at least some of that reaction to at least one superhero or heroine, at least at one point in our lives. So it's entirely possible up until that point that he's just in it for the ride. That he's just, you know, a rich boy who's playing, paying for his hobby. Or he could have been in on it from the start. That's something that's actually hinted at so quietly, I don't think I caught that the first time around. But instead, by his actions and by his, his decisions, he decides to go ahead and show himself rather firmly on the side of good. And this is why they do not make a great team, even though they could have. Because she is evil. 
and he is not. Now, this leads to uh, Lucius showing up. Thankfully, Lucius is capable enough to see the situation and immediately pick up on it. Benefits of experience right there. Speaking of benefits of experience, he also is competent enough and capable enough to recognize that the situation is bad and immediately try to transfer control over the car to the kids so they can get out of there. If he hadn't done this, this would have gone much, much, much worse. That's, again, the value of experience right there. Small note. You remember how Mr. Incredible, that is to say, Bob, had a big thing, I work alone. Now, obviously, he had his close-knit friends. He did. That was true even at the very beginning of Mr. Of, of The Incredibles 1. It does say a lot, though, that Lucius was already programmed, programmed in as a, you know, a, I have authorized use of the car thing from before, from before the, the supers were made illegal. Even back then, before Bob went through his last character arc, he still trusted Lucius enough to literally hand him the keys to the car. Interesting point. Anywho. So, they go... This gets to the action sequence. And as usual, I don't have a lot to say about the action sequences. Um, the kids go up against the other supers. They don't really do all that well until they're fighting them alone. Um, the... Uh, I'm looking at my notes here. There's a terrifying moment where Helen is a mind-controlled person, and she's a mother, and her baby is approaching. There's something uniquely terrifying about that. Actually, Kingsman did that, too, if you'll remember. Similar trick towards the end. The mind-controlled mother trying to kill her own baby. Yeah. But fortunately, the baby gets rid of the goggles, so she's saved. Now, what's funny is I wrote down my note here about how the non-Edna suit was ripped so easily in, like, one little scuffle. And... I mean, they actually call attention to it. Here, here's your actual super suit. Because, of course, Edna wouldn't make something that would rip so easily. I mean, come on. <laughs> Shows what kind of work that is, am I right? <clears throat> so, they manage to uh, pick off everything. Defeat the villain. Defeat the danger. You know, all this fun stuff happens. This is when I asked the question about Evelyn and why she saves her brother. Surprisingly literal collateral damage. Which is interesting. I mean, there's a giant chunk of snow here, but that'll eventually melt and be dealt with. It doesn't actually damage the building. It blocks the one road temporarily, and now there's a yacht there, but that's it. That's actually pretty good. It's almost like when they worked as a team, they actually did a better job of it. Huh. Again, though, not much to say about the outro. Not really. Some pluses to gameplay here and there, because it is still very, very well animated. And I, <laughs> I do really like the idea that Evelyn will get out of jail relatively quickly and easily because she's rich. And I like the idea that Winston will continue to be an ally and advocate for the Supers because he's not evil. What I find myself thinking about, though, there's a very small bit. Now, Brad Bird has already confirmed he is interested in doing an Incredibles 3. And Incredibles 2, well, let me just pull out my figures here. You probably were wondering why I haven't listed this yet. $200 million budget. $1.24 billion dollar return breaking the record again if you're paying attention so at least for the pixar films there will probably be an incredibles 3 what's interesting though is he's already flat out stated that he's not going to talk about all the ideas that get, didn't get into incredibles 2 because he wants to save them for three and what happened at the end is something that i'm pretty sure i'm the only person on the planet who would be interested in but they're going to the theaters 
And it's like, oh, no, we have to go save someone. She's like, wait, 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 wait. Pushes the kid out of the car and says, okay, get me this seat here. Give me this thing. I'll be back for the previews. Bye. And then she goes off to do super work. Can we do that? Honestly, a TV show would actually probably suit that format a little bit better. Or a management sim in a video game format. I'm dead serious. I'm sure there's some comic series somewhere that discusses or, or showcases this. But imagine people with superpowers, but the focus of the story is actually on how they interact with non-superpowered in incidents. You know, how, do, how they deal with everyday life off camera, you know, off of the big fights. Just, I don't know, I, th I think that's a fascinating idea, and I'm sure it's been done a thousand times before, I just don't know where. Feel free to share where in the comments, and how much you hate this rumination terribly, especially in comparison to the one I did last year, which went live about a year and a half ago at this point, I think. I do hope you've enjoyed regardless. I will, as ever, see you next time. Chuck.